Yora from your Every Nation Southside family here in Pepitoitoi, Auckland. You are now listening to a podcast from our church service and we pray that you will be blessed by it. For more information, please visit our Facebook page or feel free to contact our church office. Last week we talked a little bit about a grand narrative. We talked about the scarlet thread. That wasn't the focus of what I was talking about, but that was one of the grand narratives of God's story for us. Another one was our garden to city. We saw that God has this plan that takes us from a rural, muddy garden to a gold-paved city in the book of Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. There is also another theme or grand narrative or meta-narrative in the Bible, and it's one from bondage to freedom. Bondage to freedom. And we pick this idea of bondage up quite explicitly in the book of Exodus when Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. And it is recorded in the book of Exodus that before God gives the Ten Commandments, he utters these words to Moses. And God spake all these things, saying, I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So we often think of the Ten Commandments as being these kind of rules for a moral life and a a way that God wants us to live. But in fact, God prefixes what he's saying by the fact that he has delivered them out of Egypt and from slavery and bondage. And these Ten Commandments are, in a sense, a way of staying out of that condition or reverting back into it. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So God doesn't want us as Christians or his followers to be in bondage of any kind or slavery of any kind. It's anathema to his way of thinking. And Paul picks up this idea in the text you can see behind me. It's 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, the 12th verse, in which he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Notice that he's not really talking about sin here. He's talking about, I can do anything I want here, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. I want to talk about the subject of technology related to, of course, the internet. And I want to kind of draw an analogy between the internet and something you've probably never considered before but have enjoyed on many occasions. It's what's known as hyper-palatable food. Now, hyperpalatable is a compound word. It has two parts. The first is hyper, that means excessive. And it has at the other part, hyperpalatable, the palatable is tasty. So hyperpalatable food is excessively tasty food. Some of you are already thinking about it now. Now, these foods that are called hyperpalatable are designed by people in lab coats all around the world working for multinational corporations designed to create in you an addiction to their food products. You say, Adam, that can't be right. It is right. What they do is they engineer 
food deliberately to surpass the natural properties, reward properties of traditional foods like, you may have heard of some of these before, vegetables, fruits, nuts. And this is done by these evil food chemists when they suffuse their foods with things like excessive amounts of fat, salt, and sugar in just the right amounts to make them irresistible to your taste buds. I don't know if you know this, but in your mouth, you have some 2,000 to 5,000 taste buds. And on each of those taste buds, there are 50 to 100 taste receptor cells that send these little chemical messages from your tongue all the way to your brain, producing a result inside of your head that makes you feel good. And these hyperpalatable foods hyperpalatable foods working on your brain are linked to overeating, they are linked to our obesity epidemic, and a whole lot of other problems associated with modern society. Now, this is because data suggests that these foods are capable of triggering an addictive process in the human brain. I know this is not what you wanted to hear on a Sunday morning as you were contemplating a roast for lunch or maybe going for takeout and everything else. I'm as guilty as this as anybody is, but I just want you to understand, this is what the science tells us that these scientists have been doing. What a food chemist is doing is they're creating a food that is not always good for you, but that you feel compete compelled to eat more of, even if you are already full. Even if you are already full, you will want to have more of this type of food. I'm going to give you a list of some of these foods. And please bear in mind, ladies and gentlemen, you are not to leave the auditorium until a sermon is finished and it is time that you are dismissed because I'm going to mention some stuff that is going to rise up inside of you and you will start salivating as soon as I start mentioning them and you start to imagine them. The reason you do that is because of the hyperpalatability of these items I'm going to mention. At the top of my list is pizza, chocolate, chips, biscuits, ice cream, french fries, cheeseburgers, soft drinks, bacon, and of course, fried chicken. All in there, and of course, it's all combined together at the Golden Arches in the Happy Meal. It's a perfectly named type of meal because it's hyperpalatable food and they, and they put it right in the advertising. It's going to make you happy. These chemicals, take chocolate for example, it contains sugar, sugar glucose which interacts with the opioid receptor in your brain that triggers you to want to consume more. That's why when you get a box, you know, like a block of chocolate and you go, you say, I'll just have a couple of pieces of chocolate. And then by the time you finish, the packet is empty, the whole block has been consumed, and you've got chocolate down your front, the wrapper's on the floor, you're sitting there going, why did I do that? Where did the chocolate go? Who ate that? It was you. It's when you get those bluebird chips, and you think, I'll just have a little bit of the salt and vinegar. It's a perfect mixture, ladies and gentlemen. The salt and the fat, they cook it in, it's the oil, and it's just beautiful, and you open it up, I'll just have a handful. Oh my goodness, where's the bag gone? You've, you know, if you're like me, though, you just leave a little bit at the bottom. And then that way you can say, I didn't eat it all. Amazing self-control. I mean, the bag could have been this big and there are two chips left in the bottom. But you know what? I've got control, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't eat it all. The scientists know this. Think about broccoli. 
Suddenly you stopped salivating. Everything started to change. Do you know that broccoli is a proper food item? But it has very little glucose in it. While a chocolate bar, say a, uh, I've got them here, I've got a, my favorite would be a bounty bar. I love it, it's got coconut in it as well. It must be healthy, ladies and gentlemen, because anything with coconut's good for you. So this has got, um, uh, this has got roughly about 70 grams, say 60 grams, or 50 to 60 grams of sugar in it for every 100 grams. That means 50% of this is sugar. Now, I have some broccoli here. This broccoli, per 100 grams of this head of broccoli, has one gram of sugar. So it's, it's a 1% of this is sugar. 50% of this is sugar. Now what that means is, Well, that broccoli, man. That was tough. Now, I'm not going to open this. <laughs> it's too dangerous. <laughs> I could get this and say, this is what would normally happen if I did get a triple pack like this. So I have one of these um, for dinner, after dinner. It's kind of for supper with a cup of tea before I go to bed. I'd eat all three. I'd start thinking I'm going to eat one, but I would actually, in fact, eat all three. Why? Because it's full of the sugar. And this is why, say, when you go past a fruit stall, nobody in the car goes, oh, can we go in and buy some pears? Can we buy some carrots? Can we stop it and buy some pumpkin? But the kids in the car and you, because you will fall for this, when you go past the Golden Arches or Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know what? The Colonel's lunch is pretty cheap. Why don't I just go grab a couple of pieces of chicken in there? Why don't I just go get... Oh, look at the deal they've got going on. On the motorway, we're heading towards here. Some people in the car spotted a big sign for KFC and this amazing burger deal they've got going at the moment. April used to work at KFC. You know what she told us in the car on the way here? She told us that as a staff member, she was able to make and design her own burger. So what she would do is she would get the, the bun and then she'd put gravy on it and then you would put chicken popcorn chicken on it and then put a top on it and eat it. I tell you what, that's actually marketable, ladies and gentlemen, if you think about it. That is not a good thing to do. But what's happened is here is that these hyperpalatable foods set a set of reactions in our brain that release large quantities of feel-good chemicals that can be addictive and we become conditioned in our brain to crave them. It's undeniable, ladies and gentlemen. It is undeniable. Well, what are we calling today's sermon? I've decided we're going to call it Distracted Faith. Techno God, Distracted Faith. I said to you last week that I was going to talk about the, the most important technological development of the last 50 years and its impact on us and how God has given um, technology to us, but how at times it can lead us awry. Well, the internet is that technology we're going to look at. It is the most important technology of the last 50 years. It's perhaps bigger than Crocs. You guys know what Crocs are, don't you? Those plastic shoes that Pastor Taulu often wears to church when he's preaching. He's got a fetching pair of orange ones. Um, it doesn't look the best, but no one's actually bothered to tell him that. Uh, Crocs are a great invention if you have no fashion sense. No offense to anyone here who loves them. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Or you think about the other great technological development of the last 50 years. Taco shells 
that are flat on the bottom and don't fall over. You know that Mexican kid, that young girl who invented them and all the people in the village carry her around? Wouldn't it be cool to have invented the flat bottom taco shell or the most amazing invention of the last five years? Consuming vast amounts of our time and intellectual capacity is incredibly demanding but incredibly fulfilling. The fidget spinner. The fidget spinner. I think it's a close call, but I think the internet probably is greater than all those three others. The internet is used for all kinds of terrific things, for communication. This is true, ladies and gentlemen. Programs like Outlook or Skype allow you to talk to people who are thousands of miles away, literally. Entertainment such as Netflix, Lightbox, iTunes, Spotify, um, the New Zealand Herald, I put it under entertainment, ladies and gentlemen. That was just me trying to be a little bit clever. Okay, so think about also retail. Amazon, Trade Me, Mighty Ape, eBay, News and Weather, The Telegraph, The Washington Post, Fox News, Al Jazeera, some people would say CNN fits into this category. And then we have other things, of course, social media, which you all know so much about, Snapchat, Twitter, um, Facebook, etc. And of course, financial services like online banking, the Wall Street stocks, and then you have even educational websites such as Wikipedia and Wikipedia <laughs> and Wikipedia. There's just so many different places. That's all my students go to. You just imagine this is what students go to. Um, there's no other educational places there and never crack open a book because they're held in libraries and avoid those like the plague. But you can see the internet contains just an amazing array of materials that you could never have dreamed of getting just 50 years ago. Never have dreamed. A short time ago, I bought an entire set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, just a year ago. It was for sale. And that set, which is a multi-volume set of about 50 to 60, when I was growing up in the 70s, families brought encyclopedias because that was the source of knowledge so they could write their essays. That's what people did, there was no internet. Trust me, the younger people here, there was no internet. And so people buy these encyclopedias, they cost about six to $7,000. I bought them for less than $5, the entire set. Why? Because all of that knowledge that was contained in that beautiful set of encyclopedias is now replicated on the internet manifold, manifold times. It's an incredibly different world we live in. Think about some of the statistics associated with the internet. Um, we have up here the total world's population, about 7.5 billion people. We talked about our garden to city, that's urbanization. More people live in cities than ever before, 54, 55% of the world's population. But look at this, four billion people on the planet our internet users, over 50% have access to the internet. Active social media users, number some 3.1 billion people. And of course, those smartphone handsets that you love so much, 3 billion people, nearly 40% of the world's population are hooked into the internet via their smartphones. With all of these goodies that I've talked about, we're spending increasing amounts of times in our lives, not in the natural world, but like in that Julian Smith video clip, we're spending most of it in the virtual world. It's as though the film Wally has come to life. We sit in chairs and we get moved around and just look at little screens. With all of these goodies, we're spending more of our lives in the digital world. The average number of hours spent in New Zealand on the internet every single day is six hours. 
that's me, that's probably a good number of you. And that's the average. Some of you are real excessive internet junkies. We spend more time on the internet via any, a range of devices in New Zealand than ever before on the internet. Commonly, we look at the internet as being, from a Christian perspective, it's fairly naive and a simplistic approach. I hope you won't be offended by that. But when we look at the internet as Christians, we normally have what we call a moral checklist. On one side, we have good things we're allowed to do on the internet. On the other side, bad things we shouldn't do on the internet. So the good things are many of the things I've probably just talked about in terms of um, news or entertainment or financial services. On the other side, we have things like pornography, gambling, um, constructing of weapons of mass destruction, biological and chemical warfare. Um, some of you might be thinking about that. Don't do that. It's all on the internet, but you don't want to go there. And then, of course, there are trolling. Um, there's abuse of people, uh, people saying bad things, I believe, and some YouTube uh, clips. So you've got, you've got kind of things happening on the internet that you don't want to be part of as a Christian, but this place over here is safe. And that's how it works. We have this moral catalog. It's okay to be a Christian over here. Christians stay away from it over here. Now, this is, I have to say, a reasonable, simple moral response, but it is very unsophisticated and it does not answer all the questions. See, we assume that the internet is largely neutral, and then we draw a line down the middle of the page with the okay stuff on the other side, the bad stuff over here. In other words, the internet is neutral and it's all about the content that is the problem as Christians. That is not the case. This is good, but it ignores the fact that the medium of the internet, how it works and interacts with us, can shape us. It's not just the content of what we're looking at that affects us and we should consider as Christians. Marshall McLuhan put it this way, a famous um, Canadian intellectual, he said, our conventional response to all media, namely that it is how it is used that counts, is the numb stance of the technological idiot. I want you to think about the shovel. This is the reason I brought this back here today. Because we know that this helps us cultivate the garden, this simple piece of technology or this tool. But what most people don't realize is that when we use technology, it has an impact on us as well. Now, when I did some gardening about three weeks ago, I still have the residue here. Can you see that, Rowena? Look at what that is. <laughs> that there is the residue of a blister. My lily-white academic hands, as I started to shovel in this clay soil, I got a blister. I've never had one of these. I haven't had one of these for decades. It was the biggest shock of my life. What's happened? I think I'm going to die. <laughs> and, and you know, so it's just a blister. Grow up. And, um, but what happens is, if I use the shovel increasingly more, I'll get more blisters. And then when I've got more blisters, they may turn to calluses, and I might actually end up with manly hands. And these hands become stronger. And guess what would happen to these powerful shoulders. They would become more powerful. And, I would, and if I was doing this every day, instead of sitting at a computer writing stuff and surfing the internet, what kind of physical specimen would I be? I would be incredible. I'm not going to do it. Like, you, know, do, do you know what I mean? The technology we use changes us physically. 
And if you go from this type of technology to dig a hole to a digger, that may have the inverse effect on you. Why? Because the amount of strength you need to work that back, you know, the digger, is just like this, ladies and gentlemen, and you suddenly you find that atrophy takes place and those muscles you got from using the shovel are gone. The type of technology used can affect you physically. So it's not, in fact, neutral in that sense. All right. So we know this about the shovel then. It's true with the internet. The internet works the same way. John Colkin put it this way. He said, we shape our tools or technology and and thereafter our technology shapes us. We create a smartphone. We create a car. And we think that when we've created it, that's it. No, those things then shape our lives and the way we live. It's not just neutral. The technology works the same way as a shovel. It's not just the content, but the medium of the internet, how it works, it affects us. And in this case, intellectually. You see, we've got the bad stuff as Christians we know to keep away from. But what we don't realize is that even good content, has the good content over this side has nothing to do with it. It's about the way the internet works itself that impacts us, good and bad. And here's what we know, that the internet delivers precisely the kind of sensory and cognitive stimuli, repetition, intensive, um, let's put our quote up in here because I want to I put this up here about how the internet works. The internet, whether it's on our computer or tablet or smartphone, delivers the kind of sensory and cognitive stimuli, repetition, intensive, interactive, and addictive, that has been shown to result in strong and rapid alterations in the brain and its functions. What am I basically saying? That the internet is like hyperpalatable food. It has the power to enslave us. It has the power to enslave us. It has the power to make us addicted to it. How do we know this? Well, from our own personal anecdotal experiences, I would suggest. But here's what the science tells us. The first is sensory that the internet works very differently to a book, even to a television, where you just sit and engage with a book with one sense, that's your visual sense, or the television with your visual sense. A computer incorporates, or the internet incorporates three of your senses, the senses of sight, audio, and touch. As we tap the keys on our keyboard, drag our mouse left and right, Um, and effortlessly spin the scroll wheel, there's a steady stream of inputs into our visual touch and auditory cortices or portions of the brain that specialize in this. Audio clues come, and arriving emails and sound files and visual cues flash across our retinas as we navigate on the internet. And this is like what I would say the old-style emporium, filled with thousands of intriguing and alluring items. I don't know if you've ever been into an emporium, but it's a, it's a store that's just jam-packed with kind of intriguing and interesting stuff. And you look at one shelf and you go, well, that's interesting, I want to have a look at that. And then you turn and you go, wow, that's interesting, I've got to look at that. Oh, I turn over here, oh, I've got to look at that. Well, of course, the internet is really like an old-style emporium, but it changes all the time. The old-style emporium 
is unlike the internet because the internet doesn't have static displays. It offers hyperlinks, icons to be dragged and dropped, virtual buttons to be clicked, pop-up ads to be followed or dismissed. It's a Disneyland of distracting delights. The internet is a Disneyland of distracting delights. The other reason why it is so powerful and changes our brain, it physically changes the way your brain works, is that it offers rewards and responses unlike any other medium you have used before. It offers rewards and responses. Psychologists point out that the high-speed responses and rewards are what are known as positive reinforcements that glue you to the internet. They are positive responses that glue you to the internet. Though you know that you should stop eating that bag of chips. Though you know you should stop eating that that big block of chocolate. You know you should have got off the internet two hours ago. What's happened? These rewards and responses of the internet, your brain loves it. It loves it. It's the glue that holds you there longer than you ever intended to be there. Adam is saying this is true with him. (laughs) When we click online, we immediately get a response. A Google search in the blink of an eye has an answer. When we set a tweet, we get followers. We write a blog, we get comments. We post a picture on Facebook, we get a like. And guess what happens when all of those things take place? Well, science tells us that there is a drug released in our brain, dopamine or serotonin. And you get this little minute drug push of pleasure in the brain. And you feel good that someone liked your photograph, that someone commented on your blog. And what's happened is it's turned us into lab rats. We're constantly pushing levers to get tiny pellets of social or intellectual nourishment from other people. Wow. And you thought you were just logging on to the internet. What you're logging on to is a new brain, a brain that has the potential to be trapped and enslaved. This is not just true for people engaged with a lot of social media, but also gamers. Now We're going to to be standing on some people's toes here this morning, including my own. Um, Real-time gaming is addictive because it offers the immediate rewards, positive reinforcement, plus it's visually stimulating and a competitive environment. It tastes amazing. Wow. This is why the American Academy of Pediatricians, these are people who look after children and concerned about children's development. This is what they said about all of this. The American Academy of Pediatricians state that young children should not be exposed to TV and the internet. It hyperstimulates and adversely affects the developing brain and data suggests that it's associated with um, ADD, autism, Aggression, obesity, and possibly dyslexia. It hyperstimulates the developing brain in a way that it was never designed to be hyperstimulated. Well, what does all this lead to, ladies and gentlemen? Well, an addiction to distraction. An addiction to distraction. Once we hook into the internet via the computer on our desk or the smartphone in our pocket, it's really hard to deny the impulse, isn't it? It is incredibly hard to deny the impulse to get and check the latest news feed or our Facebook wall. Recent research shows, and they've looked at 81,500, recent research has shown that people check their cell phones 
for all manner of things, 81,000 times a year. 81,000 times a year. That means every 4.3 minutes of your waking lives, every 4.3 minutes, you feel compelled to look at your smartphone. Which is why, since I, the time I've been speaking, there are some of you here who have really been fighting the urge not to look at your email or Facebook or the thing you put a bid on on Trade Me or whatever it might be or what's happened with the rugby. You have had to suppress that urge. You're amazing. <laughs> You're amazing. That means that many of us have been tempted to do this. This is particularly true of the smartphone, which means we have the internet with us wherever we go. A survey of 8,000 Christians found that 54% of respondents admitted to checking their smartphone within minutes of waking up, and 74% said that they would check their smartphone before they would do any spiritual disciplines. That's three quarters of all Christians. The very first thing they would go to is the God sitting on the sideboard of their bed. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I've already set you free from being slaves. Pretty tough. The most popular drug, of course, is Facebook at the present time, although I hear the younger generation is moving to something called Instagram. On Facebook, a billion people every day check their Facebook page. What are the spiritual ramifications of this? Well, I'm going to give you three of them. This is where our message is heading towards as we move towards the end here. What are, what are the ramifications of this? And I like what Tony Ranka has to say about this. I quoted him last week. He said, kind of three areas of concern to do with the internet and its a capacity to addict us to distractions. The very first one is a simple one, but it's, it mightn't sound spiritual, but in fact, it's very spiritual. It can keep us from work and real responsibilities. Our addiction to the internet can keep us from work and very real responsibilities. Things like, hard things like work deadlines, laundry piles, school projects, the gardening, are abandoned for tinkering away in the virtual world when God wants us to face up to the very world demands that we should not try to escape away from every 4.3 minutes to spend on social media. I don't know about you, but I guess you've been at work and you've received an email or something's come up and you've thought, I'll just check that. Before you know it, you've found yourself, after having initially thought it would only take five minutes, two hours later, you find you're somewhere on the internet watching an old episode of Friends. How did you get there? Why did it take so long? What is the fruit of it all? They're kind of good questions, aren't they? <laughs> but how did you get there? I don't know, I just got there. That's how the, the chip packet got emptied. The second is, so that's our first one. It, it takes us away from things we should be doing. The second is that God has called us to love our neighbor. But when we turn the phone on, even the person right next to us is ignored. Great needs are concerned when our soul is tied to the distractions of the web. I remember many years ago listening to a, a preacher. This was a, in the days when the internet was probably very young and they would never have made this connection. But I think it's a very applicable story, even more applicable today with the internet is that this man told the story of these Christians from China, from the persecuted church in China, that came to California, and the Americans decided that they would take them to the ultimate American experience, which was Disneyland in Anaheim. 
And so they took them to Disneyland. And as these um, hosts took these Chinese Christians from the persecuted church all through Disneyland and Anaheim, it became apparent <laughs> that these Chinese individuals, these Christians, became upset, emotional. Some of them even became tearful. And the hosts thought it must be because they are amazed at the wonders of Disneyland and they're enjoying themselves so much. And when they asked them what was going on, this is what they said. It had nothing to do with that. It was this. They simply said this. Having looked at all of this, we know you will not help us. We know you will not come. Because there are too many distractions. You see, that which we see as being great technological advances could be the greatest hindrance to us in doing what God wants us to do. Disneyland seems so great, but it ends up being a collection of amusements, skipping and surfing from one thing to another, achieving very little while great tasks await and are unfulfilled because we have become addicted to this type of distraction. I remember being in a church service with Sandra at um, Hillsong London. And Hillsong London is, is kind of like this church, but it's an old theater. It's in the theater district of London and has a mezzanine floor. And we came in with the great crowds to Hillsong London. And we got up the top there and it was like a concert. Competing drummers, competing guitarists, smoke machines. I'm just gilding the lily a little bit here, but you understand what I'm talking about here. It, it was a real performance and a great show and a, I guess a good Christian service. And I remember the minister came in with these prayer cards. And these prayer cards were not just pieces of paper with ink written on them of people's concerns. It was the very real lives of people who were suffering from severe illnesses, people who had lost their jobs, people who were in the midst of a marriage breakdown, people whose children had gone off the rails. These were the heartfelt concerns of those individuals, and they'd written them on these prayer cards. And as I looked across the theater, because it was set quite dark, I could see all these flashes of light. And down there in people's laps were their phones. You see a row, and there'd be a phone here on, a phone here on, a phone here on. And the man's holding the cards, which represent the lives of these people. And there had been this young lady who had been next to me on my left-hand side for the entire service. And during the entire service, she had had her phone on and been surfing the internet or checking emails. And it was quite distracting in this dark environment because I had this light source right next to me. You know, you're trying to listen, worship God, you're trying to listen to the word, and, and this person's flicking through their phone. But when this moment came for the cards, and the person said, we don't have time to pray for all these concerns, these very real concerns for these people. He said, I'm going to put them down here, and we're going to pray. Now, it's a good Pentecostal church. So he said, I want you to stretch your hands out. And people stretched their hands out as he began to pray for these people's very real needs. And as we were praying, I looked at the young lady next to me with her cell phone on. And she had her hands stretched out. But in her left hand was cupped like this. And her thumb was scrolling through stuff as the minister prayed for the desperate needs of the people in the congregation. The Bible says the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
But what about the ineffectual prayer of a distracted young woman? It availeth what? God calls us to love our neighbor, but when we turn on our phones, they're often the least important person in our lives, our neighbors. The third thing I want to talk about and finish off with this is that it distracts us from thoughts of eternity. Digital distractions keep us from thoughts of eternity. Blaise Pascal is a very famous Christian apologist of many years ago, a great mathematician and thinker, and he put it this way. He said, I have discovered that all of the unhappiness of men arises from one simple fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. What's he saying? When a man or a woman gets cut off from all the distractions and finds themselves in a chamber in a room in which there is no internet connection, where there are no televisions, where there is no phone, they become incredibly unhappy because they start to ask important questions. What kind of man am I? What kind of woman am I? What kind of wife am I? What kind of husband am I? What kind of son or daughter am I? What kind of person am I? How do I treat other people? What is the substance of my life? What have I achieved for eternity? In those quiet moments, all those thoughts start to come to us. We start to reflect on it. And Blaise Pascal says that he discovered all unhappiness arises from this because we see ourselves truly as we are when distractions are stripped away. Peter Kreft, a Christian apologist, he said, for we have, for if we have leisure, solitude free from distractions, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. None of us want to consider looming death, ladies and gentlemen, or eternity. Whenever we get close to this, we quickly jump onto the hamster wheel of digital distractions to muffle the questions that are, in fact, the most important. Jesus battled this every day of his life and his earthly ministry. Think about the story of Mary and Martha. Martha was distracted by other things while Mary knelt at the feet of Jesus and heard things from eternity. Jesus told a parable about men who received the truth, but the cares of the world stole it away. When Jesus introduced a story about a man who built barns, and then when he prospered so much, he had to tear those barns down and build more barns, that man said, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool, this very night your life will be required from you. Then who shall these things be? You know what, ladies and gentlemen, the chores that Martha was doing or the cares of the world, or the building of barns are not inherently sinful. They're not. None of those things are sinful inherently. But they can distract us from things that have deep spiritual value. They can distract us from things that have deep spiritual value. Douglas Grutenhaus said, it's difficult to serve God when our heart, soul, and strength and mind, when we are divided and distracted. As we conclude, I want I just finish with a few thoughts here. The internet, either on our computers, tablets, or smartphones, is amazing. Could, I couldn't do it without it. My job is far more potentially, potentially productive because of it. It really is. 
but we need to acknowledge and have discernment as Christians about perhaps the adverse effects some of it may have on us as well. You see, the internet, either on our computers, tablets, or smartphones, amplifies the most unnecessary distractions as they deaden us to the most significant issues of our souls. The hyperpalatable food of the internet. Well, the internet's like hyperpalatable food because of the way it works. It has the potential to cultivate an addiction to distraction. The irresistibility of the flickering image, the immediate response, the steady stream of inputs to our visual touch and auditory cortices is intoxicating. What did Paul have to say on this subject? He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And unfortunately, technology can be enslaving in all its guises. And I believe the internet is the most intoxicating and addictive. Here's our final question that we should ponder and think about in our own lives as we take spiritual inventory on this subject. Has the hyper-palatable internet made me a slave of distractions at the expense of doing what I should loving my neighbor and averting me from thoughts of eternal consequence. Well, <laughs> if I'm being honest, my answer is not a good one for myself. What about you?